Sometimes there's a new amendment, just like there is the Constitution of the United States. But for the most part, it's very consistent. And so as long as you follow the rules, yeah. they will not unjustly punish you. The challenge is that sometimes people don't do enough work when they're just starting out to understand all the rules. Even if you get punished by Amazon, we find that they're very, very flexible and willing yeah. to work with you understanding. But that doesn't stop the emotional process. Growing a business requires a holistic approach that extends beyond sales and marketing. This approach needs alignment among people, processes, and technologies. So if you're a business owner, operations, or finance leader looking to learn growth strategies from your peers and competitors, you're tuned into the right podcast. Welcome to the WBS Podcast, where scalable growth using business systems is our number one priority. Now... Here is your host, Sam Gupta. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at digital transformation consulting firm Elevate IQ. Amazon has become so big that it has its own constitution and regularly publishes legislation with clear guidelines for vendors and suppliers. While Amazon recognizes the importance of the vendor ecosystem, they have always been customer-focused. Also, if your business is not diversified, the business buyers might perceive you as a risk as they don't like to see your business to be completely concentrated on a few customers or channels. But even for Amazon-centric businesses, you have several options through aggregators who would prefer to buy a business that is crushing on Amazon than being average on multiple channels. In today's episode, our guest, Yaz Malas, shares his insights into the exit readiness strategies for Amazon founders. He also discusses what business buyers look for when they acquire an Amazon business and why buying is more attractive for them than building a brand from scratch. Finally, he describes risk factors for investors for Amazon-focused business and business risks you can expect from the Amazon channel. Let me introduce Yaz to you. Yaz is the co-founder, co-CEO of Demon Brands, an Amazon aggregator based in NYC and one of the fastest growing companies in the space. With seven plus years of institutional investment experience, Yaz brings a unique perspective on the economic factors behind the market of buying and selling e-commerce businesses, a perspective he is dedicated to sharing with sellers without the hype. He has invested over $2 billion of capital into public and private companies and led the acquisition of over a dozen e-com brands. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hey, Yaz, welcome to the show. Excited to be here, Sam. Thanks for having me. And I am super pumped as well because the kind of background you have, the amount of and the number of businesses that you see from the Amazon perspective, I'm pretty sure you have the formula for success for these Amazon businesses. Just to kick things off, do you want to start with your personal story and your current focus? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So my personal story uh, is really interwoven with my professional story and it goes back um, to 2016. So I started my career, I'm a young guy, um, I started my career at a large asset manager, Fidelity Investments, um, yeah. working as a research analyst. Um, so I was investing in 
public and private businesses. Um, we were responsible for about uh, $2.5 trillion of assets. Oh, wow. Um, I was focused on allocating about $50 billion of that hmm. in um, various industries across real estate, uh, e-commerce, retail, business services, industrials. I've met almost every Fortune 500 CEO, uh, CFO over that five-year period. And um, I learned from some of the best investors in the world, like um, Peter Lynch and Will Danoff um, and Joel Tillinghast. And that experience gave me a very, very wide view of the world of business um, and exposure to every type of business model yeah. um, and the success and failure of those business models over the last 20 to 30 years. Um, so it was a very, very rich experience. And I did that for about five years. Um, but all the while, I had, um, you know, kind of an itch. And uh, that itch actually was an entrepreneurial itch. Um, it was an itch to do a little bit more than listen, interview, and read about really great CEOs. Yeah. Um, that itch was pushing me to, to really take action and fill that seat myself. Um, and when you spend enough time sitting across the table from really smart executives, yeah. you get really inspired to try to do what they're doing. Um, and um, I think a little bit, the extra kick came from my my uh, my childhood. Uh, my dad is a first generation um, American. Uh, he immigrated to to the United States when he was 25 years old with you know classic you know, immigrant story, a couple yeah. cents in his pocket. Got a room in New York with eight other people. It's a one yeah. bedroom studio. Started selling chicken on the streets and eventually uh, built multiple businesses over time. Um, and he became a very successful entrepreneur and, you know, growing up, my conversations at the dinner table were all business. It was, Hey, the economics of this, the unit economics of that. Yeah. Um, and I think that really gave me the, um, the confidence, um, over time in order to be an entrepreneur, right? It's a very hard thing to do to take that leap of faith from a steady corporate job. Yeah. Um, but I think my background really helped. And so, yeah, about three years ago, uh, two years ago, excuse me, I, I sent in my notice to Fidelity and um, I started D1 Brands. Um, and we buy and build Amazon brands. Our broader vision isn't just to be buying Amazon brands, but to buy e-commerce brands globally yeah. and build the next generation uh, consumer products company. And fast forward two years uh, from the point we started the business, um, we've raised about nine figures of capital. We've scaled from zero to $100 million in revenue. Um, and we're profitable and we've taken our team from a handful of people to a hundred employees. We actually just hired our hundredth employee last week. Um, and that's all been in the short span of two years. Um, so we've, we've, we've scaled really quickly. I think we've, it's been a combination of luck and, and a little bit, a lot of luck and a little bit of skill. Yeah. Um, and today my focus is really on uh, vision capital people, uh, like it was from the very beginning. And that's ensuring that. I'm, we're, we, my, as a CEO, I'm bringing in the best possible people into the organization and keeping yeah. them here. Yeah. I'm giving them the incentives to achieve great success, um, ensuring that we have the best capital partners around the table in order to fuel and fund our growth and making sure that everyone's rowing in the same direction. It's a very long way of saying that's a very long story. No, that's a very inspirational story as well. And I am glad that you actually mention all of those aspects of the story because those are going to be super relevant by the way when i interview any of the people who actually grew up in a business family they typically have a very different perspective 
And primarily the reason is because, you know, the entrepreneurship really runs in the blood. You really need to have that appetite to be able to take rest. And that's what you were able to do. And by the way, I mean, this is a kind of success. I don't know, you know, you mentioned that you are young. I don't know if you are right now 26, 30, or maybe younger than that. I don't know, man. But I mean, you have a long way to go. Uh, <laughs> 28. 28, 28. See, you have built such a massive business and I don't know what you're going to do in your next 30, 40, 50 years. So kudos to you. So we are going to dig into all of that, you know, how we can teach our e-commerce owners to be as successful as you are right now. But before we do that, we have one of these standard questions that we ask every single guest. And that is going to be your perspective on business growth. Well, first, I think if you are not growing, uh, you are likely dying um, in most industries. I think growth requires an attitude uh, for innovation and an appetite, uh, a consistent appetite for risk uh, and risk taking. Um, specifically, a, I think a culture of risk taking across your organization and a tolerance for failure. I think that's incredibly important. And I also think it requires the right people. Um, which includes the right employees, the right capital partners, um, and the and the right market in order to manifest. Those are a lot of th- it's a lot of things to get right, and it's also really hard to sustain growth over very long periods of time. As a result, yeah, I think most businesses, most business owners, yeah, I think it's like a little known fact that um, I think 90% of businesses project that they can grow 20% plus for the next five years. But if you actually look at the data, it's like 5% of businesses can actually produce that. Yep. Um, and that's because it's really, really, really hard. And it's hard for all the reasons I had just specified. It's really hard to create a, a culture of risk tolerance and and, and, an app and um, being okay with failure. It's, it's really hard to continue to find new market opportunities grow, especially because there's a ton of competition and a ton of capital that's constantly going to eat away at any initial success that you have. And it's really, really hard to find really great people that'll stay around with you for a very long time and for capital partners that can support you over many, many years. You know, most of venture and PE is built around five to seven year cycles. So I think all of those things make it very, very challenging to sustain growth over very long periods of time. Could not agree more. And you are absolutely right that the sustainability aspect of the growth is incredibly hard. And I definitely agree with the numbers that you have provided that maybe only 5% are really able to sustain that 20% growth that everybody talks about. And when some businesses come to us and they say that, you know what, I am going to be 3x in next three years when they don't really have a plan, I find that fascinating. I don't know how they are going to do it. It's really hard, as you correctly pointed out. So, okay, so we are going to connect the dots here overall from the conversation perspective. Obviously, in this conversation, we are focusing on the Amazon businesses, the e-commerce businesses. So I don't know how comfortable you are going to be in discussing some of the deal data that you have got. But what I am really looking for is when you are acquiring these businesses, and I don't know how many you have acquired so far, maybe 30, 40, but you must be going through, I don't know, maybe 10 businesses before you acquire one. So I am looking for some of the trends when you look at, let's say, the business that you really want to acquire. Why did you acquire them? What were the right variables that you looked at them that, no, I mean, this is a business that I feel 
that I can probably grow. I can take it to the next level. And the other business that you didn't acquire, it had some red flags. So can you talk about the red flags as well as the success factors for the businesses that you ended up acquiring? Yeah, absolutely. So just a bit more context. So to start, like I said, we buy and build Amazon brands. We've acquired about 25 businesses 25. Um, since we started the business in the last yeah. two years. The average business that we acquire um, is about five to ten million dollars in sales. Okay. The, the smallest business we've acquired is kind of like one to two million in sales. The yeah. biggest is forty million dollars in sales. Um, so it's a very wide range. Yeah. Some of those businesses have no team, just the founders. Some of those businesses have big teams, big systems, a lot yeah. of suppliers, very high complexity. We see the Amazon market, the universe of Amazon opportunities is very large. So there's about six million business owners yeah. that sell on Amazon. About 100,000 of them are big enough where it's interesting for us yeah. to look at them, diligence them, and maybe acquire them. Um, we, of, we probably look at, we've looked at 500 opportunities in the last 12 months, okay. uh, but we've only acquired 20. Okay. So we don't really, we have very high standards for, for what makes sense and what doesn't. As you, and to put this a bit more context, acquiring, we've acquired 20 businesses last year. Um, that is a gargantuan task in the yep. context of other roll-ups. So the, the, a roll-up is a business that you know, acquires um, and tucks in other assets. Um, historically, if you look at the roll-up business model, um, you know, typically they're doing a few acquisitions a year. Yep. Uh, we did 20. If yep. you look at some of our, our the industry itself as a whole has, has, a, has gobbled up about 1,000 yep. in the last 12 months. So it's it's really high velocity and it's very unusual. The reason that um, it's possible is because these are digital businesses. Yeah. So they don't come with the same baggage that a lot of, like a traditional traditional business would, right? Yep. There's no physical location, right? You're you're um they're borderless businesses, so they're incorporated in the U.S. Sometimes they're incorporated outside the U.S., but they don't have a lot of the same tax and legal um, uh, baggage as a traditional business. Yeah. There aren't a lot of suppliers. There's only typically one supplier. You don't actually have a direct relationship with the customer. So you don't have a lot of insurance or liability issues that come along with that. Yeah. Um, and your marketing funnel tends to be a lot more simplified as a result. Okay. Um, these businesses are just selling on Amazon, right? They're, there's a, they're not, there's no, there's no multi-channel. They're usually just on Amazon. Um, they have a very, very simple product catalog. Typically, yeah. a few products to maybe up to 100 products. Yeah. You know, a traditional brick and mortar retail business might have 500 SKUs, 1,000 SKUs, 20,000 SKUs inside of a store. Yeah. All of, for all those, and, and again, they typically have very small teams. And yeah. the teams aren't full time employees. It's typically a founder, yeah. maybe a, CEO, a COO and a CFO, and then, you know, a handful of employees that are contracted and or um, internal. Um, so, really small teams. So all those things make these businesses highly digestible, yeah. um, and that's why we can do a lot more really quickly. The things that we look for uh, when we're buying these businesses is first and foremost, uh, are they selling products that customers really love yeah. and where the customer is getting a ton of value? Yeah. And do, you, do we think that that's going to continue to be the case for the next 10 years? Okay. Uh, that's at a very high level the strategy. And not every business um, fits into that profile, either because of the products they're selling, 
um, or the stage the business is in in its life cycle. Yeah. To get more specific, the businesses that we're buying, they're private label Amazon FBA businesses. Okay. So which means that they have trademarked um, innovative products yeah. that they can exclusively sell on Amazon's platform as a third-party seller. Okay. Where Amazon's doing the fulfillment, they take a take, and then they collect the rest of the profits, the third-party seller. Um, these, um, these businesses um, typically have... Um, they generally, the, the most val- one of the most valuable asset other than the products that they're, they're selling are the listings yeah. on Amazon's list. Yeah. So every single one of these businesses, they own, uh, they have one brand and they have a bunch of products. Each of those yeah. products are represented as listings on Amazon. So when you yeah. go onto amazon.com and you type in kitchen towels, yeah. um, you get 44 options. Each yeah. one of those options, what we call a listing, each yeah. one of those listings have reviews attached to them. 5,000 yeah. reviews, 2,000 reviews, 1,000 reviews. And they have product ratings, like four star, five star, four and a half star, right? Yeah, yeah. Those are the things as a customer, when you go on Amazon, you care about the most, right? Yeah. And that's also what Amazon cares about the most. What drives high reviews and really high quality product ratings? Yeah. It's the product and the experience itself, right? Yeah. And so when we're looking at a brand to get more specific, we're, yeah. we, really, we really care about, hey, are you at the top of Amazon search results page for kitchen towels? Yeah. Do you have, do you have really high review counts relative to your, all the other listings in your category? Yeah. Do you have really strong product ratings? Yeah. Do you have a very attractive price point? Okay. Those are the, to get specific, the really core values yeah. uh, or uh, variables, excuse me, that we look for. And so, uh, you, tip, you know, when we find something like that, we, yeah, we focus a lot of attention on it and um, we, those are the assets we look to buy. Generally speaking, we are also, you know, the, the prices for these businesses um, is anywhere from three times EBITDA yeah. to five times EBITDA. Yeah. Um, so, and they're profitable, highly profitable. Yeah. And they're growing because they are tied to Amazon's coattails. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're riding Amazon's coattails. And as you know, Amazon has you know, been a share taker in e-commerce yeah. over the last 10 years. Um, and they're the dominant force uh, in the retail space today. Um, and so if you look at the growth profile of yeah. these businesses, yeah. it's been about 50% growth per year over the last 10 years. Okay. Um, so the, and then the other more, the really important thing here is this is the, this is the most important insight. It's that what we've just, what we've, what we found is, um, and this is very similar to Google. Um, so, you know, it's very similar to Google and I'll get to that in a second, but listings uh, that are at the top of Amazon's search results page yeah. um, with, with a lot of the most reviews and the best ratings typically stay there. Okay. And they, they stay there for a very long period of time because they have the most amount of profits that they can use to reinvest in really strong in product innovation which allows yeah. them to stay at the top. They can also reinvest those profits into price in order to continue to offer the best price. Yeah. Um, and then the other important thing is customers really care about social proof. Yeah. Um, you know, marketplaces generally, I think, have diluted the value of brands through um, and replaced it with social proof in the form of reviews and ratings. Yeah. And that's clearly evident on, on Amazon's marketplace. And that's what customers really care about. And so the brand, the listings that have really high reviews and really strong ratings 
also tend to have the highest click-through rates. They have the highest conversion rates. Yeah. And so they end up being um, all those all those features of being at the top. Yeah. Self-reinforcing. Um, and so they they generate what we call power laws inside of marketplace the marketplace uh, categories. Yeah. Where if you are you know the top the top typically what it means is the top. 20% of listings will yep. generate about 80% of the sales yep. within a specific category. And yep. that's pretty consistent over time. And so all of those features are what drive our investment philosophy. Um, and if you look at a lot of the businesses we've bought, uh, that's exactly what you'll find. And our job is to take those, those listings and those brands and uh, reach new customers yeah. on Amazon and in new channels and in new geographies yeah. um, and really nurture and care um, for, for, those, for those products and brands and continue to deliver an incredible customer experience. The other thing is, you know, a big part of our, um, our mission at D1 is to, you know, we really believe in the power of marketplaces yeah. um, and the value that it brings to consumers broadly. Yeah. And the way the special, the really special thing about marketplaces is that they have infinite shelf space. Okay. And that infinite shelf space and the marketplace business model allows for the, what we call the atomization of creators. Right? Yeah. So every third party business, every third party seller is creating, they're creating products every single day. And they're trying to bring something new and different and interesting to the market and list it on Amazon. So that customers have an opportunity to buy it. And so it, it, the marketplace on Amazon has, they've, it's, it's so powerful because of the infinite shelf space. Yeah. Um, because you can attract as many people as possible to try to create products and put it on there. And that drives innovation and it drives selection for customers. Um, but what the lifeblood of that marketplace is economics. Yeah. Third-party sellers need to feel like there is a good economic incentive yeah. to selling on the marketplace. Yeah. And Amazon has done a pretty a really good job of making sure of that. Like I said, these businesses are profitable. Yeah. But what we've done coming into the space as a as a as a buyer is we brought liquidity into this market. Yeah. You know, historically, if you you build an Amazon third-party business, yeah. all you can do is count on the profits of the business. You couldn't ever count on selling to anybody. Selling your business on uh, your Amazon third-party private label business three years ago was not in a single person's mind. Today, um, that's completely different. And so we really feel we really view ourselves um, as also a liquidity provider in this yeah. market, giving Amazon entrepreneurs and creators an opportunity to sell and monetize years and years of hard work. And what do they do? They take that money. And they go right back into the marketplace and start inventing again. Yeah. And so that that reinforces the, the creativity and innovation in the yeah. ecosystem. Yeah. It continues to bring great products to customers. But it, we also are, are you know doing a service to a lot of these entrepreneurs. And, and then and then as a result, it attracts more and more entrepreneurs. And so that's a big part of why we come to work every single day as well. Very interesting. So there are a lot of layers to that discussion. And uh, you know, we are going to touch uh, some of them. So obviously, when you mentioned that, you know what, uh, you are buying these businesses, number one, because of the product. Number two, it's going to be the customer experience. But most importantly, you are buying them for the listing, the reviews. And that's what matters the most overall from the business valuation perspective. Now, if we look at the business community, especially 
among manufacturers, distributors, retailers. I mean, they have this sort of fear of Amazon. And in my opinion, I think the fear is real. And the reason why they have the fear of Amazon and the similar fear exists for Walmart as well. If you look at, I mean, even though Walmart does not have the, sure, I mean, they are sort of, you know, catching up on the marketplace. They are not as digital. But from the business model perspective, you know, Walmart was always offering the shelf space. The vendors did not really have as much clout. Overall, in the negotiation, Walmart always had the clout. And the business community felt that, you know, uh, these guys are really cutting down the vendors uh, as and when they need. Obviously, when you look from the Amazon perspective, they are powerful because of the marketplace and the vendor ecosystem. But still, Amazon is never going to be as fair as Google, even though, you know, even in case of Google, you always have these, you know, changes and somebody is getting benefited uh, because of those changes. But typically, they are going to be extremely aligned with how users are going to perceive because Google is not really trying to compete with their own users who are actually trying to use Google. So now, based yeah. on this, uh, you know, and by the way, I mean, see, you guys are the liquidity provider in this case. So you are buying these businesses for the reviews, for the listing. Now, if you have this much money and Amazon has far more money than you guys, so why can't you create the similar experience as opposed to buying these businesses? Would it be easier to create this experience from scratch than buying these businesses? So our heritage, remember the first thing I said is we buy and build Amazon brands. That's yep. very key. So we've built five, four of our brands and we've acquired about 20. Yeah. So we believe in both building and buying brands on Amazon. Okay. Um, our heritage uh, is actually um, building brands. So what I haven't mentioned is that I have three co-founders. Yeah. Um, and although my background is on the investing side, my co-founders' backgrounds are all on the operations side. So they yep. have all, all of my co-founders have been building brands on Amazon yep. for the last eight years. Hmm. Uh, and we've had, we have they've successfully built four brands, scaled them to eight figures. Um, and that's, that, that covers over 200 different product launches that, that sit under those brands. Yep. Um, and we've been very successful at taking new products to market on Amazon. But we found that what's happened is Amazon in 2012 yeah. was very different than Amazon in 2020, right? Amazon in 2020, 2012, they were just starting to really take off, yeah. uh, especially the FBA business model. Yep. Uh, but if you look at Amazon in 2012, they had five, let's just five, let's just call it five million empty digital shelves. Yeah. And there was a race to fill those shelves yeah. over the last five to seven years. Yeah. And a lot of that shelf space got filled by private label sellers who yeah. launched product, right? And then as it's filled up, the market has matured. Now you go onto Amazon, you can find anything, anything. You type in anything, there's somebody selling it and they have probably a couple thousand reviews, Yeah. right? And they're selling a very good product. Yeah. So what that has done is it's limited the opportunity for new product development. Now, it's, that doesn't mean there's no opportunity. We still find that there's incredible amount of opportunity. And the reason there's always going to be opportunity is because, like I said, Amazon is infinite shelf space. So the, yep. on the margins, there's always going to be stuff that's being recycled and changed and shifted around and new, new, um, new products that people want to buy. Consumer tastes always change. Um, so there's always going to be an opportunity to launch. But what it's done, it's the, the middle, those, like the, 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 the core shelf space that's all yep. been filled up, that's really matured now. And so it becomes more appealing to acquire it than it is to, to, to start to try to compete with 
somebody who's been selling kitchen towels or haircutting scissors or electric speakers on Amazon for the last five years and have 50,000 reviews. It's very difficult to unseat those people. Yeah. They've already perfected the product and innovated over and over again for, for, for five years, taking every single customer review and using that in order to, to, to refine their product a bit. Um, so just very difficult uh, to compete with those types of uh, products. And so that's why we are taking a very balanced approach now. You know, our business in the early, early days was really about launching and now it's more about buying. Very interesting. So now let's go back to, uh, you know, our conversation about Amazon being this risk, right? So you being sort of the, the completely Amazon business and you are really putting your money on the Amazon businesses where, uh, you know, if you actually look at some of the other investors, they are a little afraid overall if the business is going to be completely reliant on Amazon uh, because they yeah. see it as a risk because, you know, anytime anything could change from the Amazon perspective, they might actually increase the commission rate. And that's it. I mean, if you don't have the margin, then what are we going to do? Or they might, you know, close the account. I mean, sometimes that's a fear. Uh, you know, some of the customers that we are working with, let's say if they are at $50 million point, 50% of that revenue is actually coming from Amazon. Now, Amazon becomes a very big player in this game. And obviously, Amazon has all this data. They are looking at this and they could change the business model at any point of time. And that could really uh, jeopardize some of these businesses, uh, which is going to be their bread and butter, to be honest. I mean, when you have 50% revenue, that's a big deal, uh, you know, for that business. So do you see that as a risk, you know, especially when your business is going to be completely reliant on Amazon's strategies, how they are serving their vendors? Yeah, it's a great question. There's obviously always going to be platform risk. Yeah. Um, anytime you are, all of your revenue is coming from one, one, one channel, uh, there is, there is, there is a uh, platform risk, but platform risk comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes. Yeah. I think that's where people need a bit more education. So yeah. my view is that, yes, it's a risk that one day Amazon maybe changes their entire business strategy. Yeah. Or maybe one day there's Walmart up to the next, in the next decade takes away a lot of Amazon's market share. I'm not sure. There are things that could happen in the industry. Yeah. And that can hurt Amazon's dominance as a marketplace today. Yeah. But that's very different. Those are external factors in my mind. The internal factors are, Hey, is Amazon going to raise its, fees and yeah. is Amazon going to take away 10 more points of margin over time? Yeah. Is Amazon going to unjustly shut down my account? Yeah. Those risks are I'm more comfortable with. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why it really all boils down to one very simple truth and simple idea. Yeah. And you know, if you actually go and read the Bezos uh, annual letters yeah. over the last 20 years. He's written an annual letter every single year since from 19 since 1997. Yeah. And if you read them, you'll get a very good understanding of his view of the retail business. Yeah. Um, and the value it brings to customers. Yeah. Um, and it a lot of it boils down to what everybody I think everybody probably knows in this call, which is price. Yeah. Convenience. Yeah. And selection. Yeah. Those are the three core drivers of Amazon's flywheel and the things that they will do it. They'll do anything to preserve. Yeah. That's what keeps customers coming back. Now 
the, the biggest driver of selection is the vibrancy of the third-party marketplace. Yeah. Because if they can no longer attract third-party sellers yeah. to build new products and fill shelf space yeah. uh, on their marketplace platform, they're gonna have their selection to customers is going to become worse over time. Yeah. So now the question is, what is it that would destroy third-party sellers' incentive to build and innovate on Amazon's behalf? Yeah. What would the thing that would destroy that is by ruining the economics of this. Yeah. So if it's no longer attractive financially, exactly to take all of the risk of building a business and selling only on Amazon as a third-party private label seller. Yeah. Then no one's going to do it anymore. And if nobody yeah. does it anymore, yeah. there's less products to sell in the marketplace and less customers that come on Amazon. And so, and then Amazon's business starts to unravel. Um, also, third-party sellers and the vibrancy of the third-party seller market ecosystem yeah. creates a lot of competition. And that competition ensures that there's always the lowest possible price for customers. So, as the big, the biggest part of Amazon's flywheel is actually the vibrancy of the marketplace. And so, what I, how I answer all those questions is by stating that fact. Yeah. Because if you believe that, then it helps get get you comfortable with all those potential risks, right? Yeah. So, for example, hey, is Amazon going to increase its fees? Yeah, it probably will. But it'll probably, if you look at the last five years, Amazon's fees have gone up in line with CPI. Okay. So they increase prices in line with inflation. That's totally normal. Your real estate landlord does the same exact thing. Yeah. Have they done have they done any more than that? Yeah. Rare. Very rare. So they're not trying to extract any more value from you. They're just trying to get their fair share. And the reason is because they don't want to destroy the economics of sellers. Right. And actually, if you look at the margin profile of Amazon FBA businesses over the last five years, they've been yeah. remarkably remarkably consistent. And so Amazon hasn't taken more of the pie. Because they know that where the market is today is at a very healthy equilibrium where it, it's Amazon making enough money yeah. and it's and sellers continue to come to the market. Um, with respect to Amazon account shutdowns and product suspensions, that's a real risk. But what I will say is that for the most part, you know, it's just like it's like anything. Um, the reason the United States is such a creative place. Yeah. And such an innovative place is because we have very clear rules of law. Yeah. Right. You build something, you can patent it. It's yours for 20 years. Nothing's ever going to change that. We have a court of law that's yeah. going to ensure that in the precedent and legal system. There's no dictatorial um, authoritarian leader that's going to come in and say, oh, this is an exception. Amazon understands that. They realize that if you want to inspire creativity, you have to make sure you have consistent, yeah. consistent rules that are fair. And if you look at their terms of service, which is basically like the constitution of Amazon, yeah. which if you violate, they, they punish you. It's been remarkably stable. Yeah. Things change on the margins. You know, sometimes there's a new amendment, just like there is the constitution of the United States. But for the most part, it's very consistent. And so it's as long as you follow the rules, yeah. they will not unjustly punish you. The challenge is that sometimes people don't do enough work when they're just starting out to understand all the rules. Yeah. Even if you get punished by Amazon, we find that they're very, very flexible and willing yeah. to work with you and understanding. But that doesn't stop the emotional suffering, right? Because at the end of the day, if you're an entrepreneur, you put fifty thousand dollars in, like your your kids are waiting, to, you know, you gotta put food on the table and yeah. Amazon shuts you down for a week. Yeah. Like me telling you this isn't gonna make anything any better. You're gonna freak out. Right, 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 right. right. 
But over time, with enough experience, we've just found that they are generally very supportive partners. And yeah, it's just a matter of knowing knowing what the rules are. Yeah, so I don't believe that there are going to be any sort of sweeping changes where Amazon is going to completely change their business model or they are going to completely change any sort of the laws that they have established for everybody. Typically, those changes are going to be really micro. And from my experience of the marketplaces as you have two perspectives. One is going to be your customer's perspective and the second is going to be your vendor perspective. And most of the marketplaces and the ecosystem, they typically take customer's perspective at the expense of the vendors, okay? Because you can have just one perspective. You can't be uh, you know, friendly to both. And sometimes what happens is when you are taking that perspective, and I completely agree with you that, you know what, right now the prices are rising based on the inflation, that's great. But the consumer expectations are rising. And those consumer expectations require that you have the foundational element. Now, if you are looking at some of the bigger players, such as yourself, right, you are going to have far more refined technology infrastructure. Let's say Amazon says that, you know what, I want you to do 24-hour delivery or 8-hour delivery or 4-hour delivery, you know, for certain product categories. You can probably meet those expectations. But my guy who's actually doing $5 million in sales, they are not going to have that infrastructure. Now you are going to penalize them. That is going to eat their margins. So they will really struggle. Do you see this as a risk when you are selling only on Amazon because of all of these changes, because of the rising consumers' expectations and perceived bias of Amazon to their customers? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. That's a very important insight. Amazon cares more, cares about the customer, period. Yep. Sometimes that creates problems for us, but usually it doesn't because we built our business to care about customers just as much as Amazon does because we know that's going to be right for us in the long run. So I agree with you that we have advantages, scale advantages um, that other sellers do not. However, Amazon, we compete, we, we compete with Amazon in that respect. So Amazon is building tools for the average seller yep. in order to level the playing field with aggregators and scaled Amazon sellers. So right now there is an imbalance, but Amazon work, Amazon has teams dedicated to rectifying that imbalance. How do they do that? They're offering FBA, right? So Amazon does the fulfillment, not us. And Amazon's always going to be better at fulfilling than we are because they have more money and more scale. Yeah. All of our, every time we build, a, not every time, but sometimes we'll build a solution or we'll think about building an in-house technology solution. And then we'll talk to the Amazon reps and like, actually, that's on our product roadmap. We're about we're going to roll. We're going to build that ourselves and roll it out to every single Amazon seller. Yeah. So what we find is we have we're constantly competing with Amazon to get an edge over other sellers. And Amazon's working on behalf of other sellers in order to make sure they're keeping up with us so that they maintain equilibrium in the ecosystem. Now, there are there are still things that are where we have slight advantages, um, but it's a constant race to stay ahead. It's a constant race to stay ahead. And that's that's why a culture of innovation is so important. Um, I do because we're competing against other Amazon sellers, you know, against other aggregators, and we're competing against Amazon on yeah. the infrastructure side. So that's it's a it's a it's a wild race. Yeah, very interesting. So now one of the questions that I'm going to ask is going to be again from the seller perspective. If these companies are trying to sell their businesses, you mentioned that the the companies that you have got they were actually growing 50% year over year, and they had really strong product positioning. So why are these companies selling to you guys? Why do they believe that you know you guys can do a better job than they themselves? Yeah. 
I think what, so what's happening is, and it's, it's interesting because it ties in directly with this podcast. I actually wish some of the, I mean, it would be good if a lot of those Amazon sellers that we're talking to or listen to this podcast, yep, because yep. the issue, the reason we hear often, most often for the reason to sell is because there, the business is at the point, it's usually between two and $5 million of sales. Yeah. It was built and run by one person, the founder, and they have all that passion and energy. Yeah. Um, and they love taking things from zero to one, but at two to 5 million, it becomes really hard to keep scaling without taking on more risk, adding more, adding more, building a team, uh, raising capital, complexities start to really grow. And it goes from being that really exciting, you know, entrepreneurial venture to a very challenging business that needs to scale. Um, and it becomes, it doesn't become as much fun for them anymore. And then they say, let's sell to an aggregator that can take this business from, you know, five to 15. And they already have that infrastructure built out. They're, they're a team that I can trust. Yeah. Um, and let me, let me share some of those economics along the way. And so that's the primary reason that we've seen a lot of sellers choose to sell. That's but if they listen to your podcast, they, they wouldn't need to sell. They just need to learn from, from all the great business leaders on here on how to keep scaling. And then they're good. Right. Exactly. That's what we are trying to teach here. But I mean, there is going to be a point when everybody needs to figure out whether they can grow it themselves. They need to count on somebody who is going to have far deeper pockets, uh, you know, far more experience than yourself. I mean, experience is always a factor when you go from from your 1 million to 2 million, 2 million to 5 million, 5 million to 10 million, 10 to 100. It's a different ballgame. It's a different race. <laughs> it is. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. So that's it for today. Do you have any last minute closing thoughts or remarks for our listeners? Yeah, I would just say if you're an Amazon, uh, if you're a business owner of an Amazon FBA business and you are considering exit options um, at some point in the future or, or today, give us a, give us a shout out. Give us a call. At the very least, um, like I have been on this podcast, we are a very open, honest, uh, transparent organization that genuinely believes in our role as liquidity providers to um, Amazon founders, um, but also partners that can take your business to, um, you know, to the next level while you continue to share in the economics. So if you just want to reach out and learn, call us. Um, and if you're serious about you know, thinking about your ne the next phase in your career, also call us. We are rapidly scaling and we're looking for incredible people to join us on this journey. We're hiring for very senior roles as well as very junior roles. Uh, so if this is something that you think is exciting and interesting, um, and I'm a person that you think you might be interested in working with, please reach out. We have a lot of open roles on our website. You can go to d1brands.io to find out. Thank you. Awesome. Amazing. And my personal takeaway from this conversation is going to be, if you are an Amazon business, have that really deep understanding whether you can really grow this business in next five to 10 years to the level that others are probably going to be far more qualified to be able to grow. So have that understanding. And if you feel that you are not qualified uh, to be able to attract the talent or the resources that you are going to be needing to be able to grow this business, then it's better to exit. On that note, I really yeah. want to thank you for your time and insights. This has been a fascinating conversation, yes. Lovely. Likewise, thank you. I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge mm -hmm. and journey. I always pick up learnings from our guests and hopefully you learned something new today. If you want to learn more about Yaz or D1 Brands, head over to d1brands.io. Thinking about selling your e-commerce business? 
Sellers like Divan most because they are sellers too. They make selling fast, fair and simple with a 100% close rate and an average closing period of only 27 days. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes including the interview with Brian Back from Enceba who discusses key trends in B2B e-commerce including the rise of Amazon's prominence in B2B product research in buying and why manufacturers and distributors should be paying attention and acting now. Also the interview with Michael Begg from AMZ Advisors who brings a unique perspective for manufacturers and e-commerce merchants from his experience of helping customers getting started on Amazon as a revenue channel and grow their e-commerce businesses from the ground up. Also, don't forget to subscribe and respect the world among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you and I hope to catch you on the next episode of the WBS Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the WBS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.